0: Well, it's no secret that we are nine days away or that the country to which we have been called, the country into which we have been placed, rather, that I should say, in nine days has an election. It's also no secret that elections are divisive, especially in a country with a two-party system, especially when The numbers can be so close that the popular vote and the electoral college can go different directions. And the stakes seem higher to some at least this year. I was reading one poll that was put out in early October that said that a swath of Americans are already skeptical about the results of an election and deeply concerned about how society is going to respond. And here we are in the middle of a series on church unity. How can we maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as Paul calls us to do in Ephesians in the middle of an election season? Well, one very popular answer, probably the answer that most people give, is we should take the same tack that we take around the dinner table during holidays—not talk about it, right? And I understand, uh, and I understand that there's really good reason for that because I believe deeply that if a church uh, starts talking about politics, it can become partisan. And for a church to become partisan, in my estimation, is not only unwise, it's actually dangerous. And yet, there's also a danger that we don't talk about, about not talking about politics as well, isn't there? The danger about not talking about politics at church is that we imply or even functionally act as if there is a sacred sphere called politics over which Jesus is not Lord. And there is a part of our lives called our political lives that the Bible doesn't speak into. And yet we do know that the Bible does address our relationship to the state. We don't talk about that a lot, but it does. In fact, and a good example of that is in the verse that I'm going to preach on this evening, Philippians Chapter 1, verse 27. Most English translations go something like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But I want you to take open your Bibles, and especially if you have an ESV, I want you to look down at the footnote. Because the ESV correctly points out that Paul what Paul says more literally is only behave as citizens. The verb that he uses in the Greek is a verb politeomai. And you can even hear our relationship to the word politics. The word in the ancient world meant to discharge your duties as a faithful citizen, to behave as a citizen. Be a good citizen, Paul is saying. Discharge your duties as a faithful citizen. Now, citizenship, you have to understand, was a precious commodity in the ancient world. You didn't get it just by being born. In in ancient Rome, citizens, they got got, uh, exempt from many taxes. They had the right to trials. They could own property. In ancient Rome, citizens also were exempt from the harshest punishments, punishments like crucifixion crucifixion and not everybody was given citizenship initially in the Roman Empire only those who lived in Rome or in the surrounding uh, surrounding areas in Italy were giving were given citizenship but if you didn't live in Italy if you didn't live in Rome you could get it by serving your country patriotically serving the serving the Empire patriotically and they would give special dispensations, to people and also to cities for their patriotic duties. And so Philippi was a place that was chock full of citizens and it was very, very, uh, it had a lot of civic pride and a lot of patriotism. It was filled with expats, ex veterans, retired veterans. And it was also a Roman colony, which meant it was treated just like it was in Rome or on, uh, on Italian soil. And so Paul knows exactly what he is doing when he uses this word and he addresses the Philippians, and he says something to them that he doesn't say in any of his other letters. He says, behave as citizens. He is capitalizing on their civic pride. And then what he says next is altogether shocking. Because Paul says, live as citizens, Worthy not of the Roman Empire, but of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you need to know what Paul is not saying. Paul is not simply saying, discharge your civic duties, pay your taxes, go vote, uh, do jury duty, and just do it in a Christian manner with integrity. Don't lie, cheat, or steal when you do it. He is not simply saying that. He's at least saying that, but he's saying a lot more than that. Paul is actually calling us here to a higher allegiance. How do I know that? Because only two chapters later, you can flip a page in your Bible. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul starts talking about people who have set their minds on the things of the flesh. And they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says, but we, we are not like that. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying our citizenship, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and to his kingdom. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. Our ultimate identity is found there and also our ultimate hope because you know what the slogan of the day was? The slogan of the day was Caesar's Lord and Savior. And we await Caesar to come and bring the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and to subdue everything under his feet. And Paul says, No. But our citizenship is in heaven, not Rome. And from it we await a Savior. Jesus Christ the Lord, not Octavius Caesar. And he's the one who is going to come and subdue everything under his feet. Paul is calling us here to a higher allegiance. And he is calling the Philippians. And it would have been shocking to them to hear these words. Aristotle said that the most supreme of all communities... And the one that includes all others and does the most good is the state. This was the thinking of the day. And I wonder how different it is today. How different it is today. Just think about how unwilling people are to part ways with their party on any issue. Or consider how much emotional investment and stock people put into elections every four years. It causes us to ask the question, does it not? Where is our hope and where is our allegiance? Matthew uh, Grinskow, who is a... um, political scientist at Stanford University, and he studied the history of division uh, in politics over through the course of the US. And here's what he concludes after studying the history of division in, uh, in America. He says, Americans may or may not be further apart on issues than they used to be. It's interesting. Americans may or may not be further apart on issues than they used to be. But he said this, clearly what divides them politically is increasingly personal. In other words, they hold it closer. We hold it closer than we used to. Matthew Ware, who used to work in faith-based initiatives during the Obama administration, said this. He said, people don't want to talk about politics because they hold it closely. And that got me. I wonder if that's why we don't want to talk about politics at church. I wonder if we hold it too closely. That no one can get between us and our our precious ideas. You see, here's why I think it's dangerous to be partisan. I think it's dangerous to be partisan. Because when we become partisan we at church... We lose our prophetic edge. It, it's no longer, it's no longer that, that uh, well, rather than, what happens is that we end up letting a party or a platform control our interpretation of the Bible rather than letting the Bible control how we interpret various parties and platforms. And it's not simply the case with parties and platforms. I think it's even the case with how we view government. One of the things that actually struck me that I had to wrestle with this week as I was preparing and the last few weeks as I've been preparing for this and thinking about this is this. Is my view of government Kyle Wells had to ask this to himself. Is my view of government more dictated and determined by enlightenment notions of of autonomous free people coming together to protect their autonomy and forming a social pact to do so? Or is it determined by a, pre, by a biblical understanding of a triune God who is one and three, who is an interdependent community and who ordains government for good so that we can live in interdependent communities together? Paul is calling us here to a higher allegiance, but one of the things that I think weakens our ability to hear that call is what I would call civil religion. Civil religion is is when we, we weave together the story of salvation in Jesus Christ and the story of the greatness of America. In civil religion, what happens is the mission of God gets confused with manifest destiny. In civil religion, what happens is that, is that freedom in Christ gets conflated with, with individual liberty. Walter Brueggemann, and I think this happens on both sides of the aisle. In fact, I think you can go and you can listen. I mean, just about every state of the union I've heard... If you listen hard enough, includes this, and just about every talk at a at a convention includes this. So that's why Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says the crisis with the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has to do with giving up the faith and discipline of our baptism, and settling for a common generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. See, the question is, where is our ultimate allegiance? And where is our ultimate hope? Is it in voting a particular candidate in or out? Is it in the expansion of or limitation of government? Or is it in Jesus the King coming to subdue everything under His feet in His grace and His gospel going forward in His rule and His reign? Now, I do not believe, and I want to make this clear, I do not believe that Paul believes that the fact that we are called to a higher allegiance means a disengagement from civic affairs. Many people in Paul's ministry still served in civic functions and served in civic duties. And if God has ordained government for our good, then it is a high and a holy calling to be involved Absolutely, and we should pursue it. And in a democratic society, we're all, to a degree, who are citizens involved. And yet, and yet, Paul does believe that this higher allegiance will cause attention with our earthly citizenship. Why do I say that? Because Paul doesn't say, and your citizenship is in heaven. He says, but. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a savior. Because Paul knows that actually prioritizing our heavenly citizenship over our earthly one will require work and will be a struggle. He knows that. And so he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so when we live with this higher allegiance, with a higher hope, with a, with a deeper sense of identity being formed and shaped by the fact that we are citizens, fellow citizens, heirs, with the Jews of the kingdom, as we heard about last week from Ephesians, it will reframe our civic engagement. Notice what Paul says. He says that we are to live as citizens, verse 27, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't be confused here. Paul is not saying that we can somehow make ourselves worthy as if we could merit the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God comes to the unworthy and he gives a gift to the unworthy without regard to worth who could never merit it for themselves. That's not what worthy means. But he is saying, this word worthy, it means that he is saying that those who have received the gift can live in a way that befits the gift, that's suitable to the gift. In other words, he's saying what he says to the Galatians, that there is a way to keep in step with the truth of the gospel. And there is a way to live as citizens that keeps in step with the truth of the gospel. Well, what would that look like? We don't have to wonder. Paul tells us, we just have to ask what is the gospel? And Paul sings the gospel 7 verses later in chapter two, 2 when he when he starts when he reminds the Philippians of the Christ hymn the Jesus story of Jesus who is God of gods and Lord of lords a very god a very god who had ultimate status and ultimate privilege But who did not exploit that status and that privilege for his own advantage, but rather humbled himself, taking on the form of a slave without rights, without status, without privilege. And and he identified with humanity and he played the part of Adam becoming obedient where Adam was not obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross, death by crucifixion by the Roman government. That's The Jesus story. That's the gospel. Therefore God raised him up and gave him the name which is above every name. So that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Yahweh. The one true God of Israel. The creator and redeemer of the world. To the glory of God the Father. That's the story. And Paul says that we are to live in keeping with that story. In other words, we, we are to discharge our duties as citizens in self-divesting, rights-renouncing, sacrificial love. You know, today it seems like the name of the game is to win. And for some, sadly, it is to win at all cost. But I want to tell you something. I can promise you this. When you stand before God on the great day, he is not going to ask any of us, did you win? He is not going to ask that. He will ask us, did you love? He is not going to ask any of us, were you successful? But he will ask, were you sacrificial? Sacrificial? You see, it is far better to lose the right way than to win the wrong way. In fact, that is the story of the gospel because Jesus, he won through losing. He was crucified by Caesar and therein he gained his ultimate victory. This is the story of the gospel that that we we pursue the means that God has called us to in obedience, and we leave the ends to Him. Remember that, whoever you vote for when you go to the polls, that Christianity is not an ethic of the ends justify the means. Christianity is an ethic that we give ourselves over. To the Jesus way. And the Jesus way is one who commits his spirit to God and trusts in the God who raises the dead. And he did and he does. And that's what we believe. This is who we are. We are people of the resurrection. And so we give ourselves over. We give ourselves over because maybe our greatest public witness at this time, in this place, could be to lose with the right spirit and in the right way and to leave the results to God. Your citizenship is in heaven. Paul calls us to a higher allegiance. But secondly, quickly, Paul calls us to a community allegiance. He says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Aristotle said that every state is a partnership, a koinonia, a word that Paul will use over and over in this letter, and we'll talk about later. In other words, Aristotle viewed the state not as some necessary evil to protect our individual rights, but actually as a place where people come together in interdependence and mutual dependence, and that's where they flourish in seeking the good of the community. And for Paul, he actually has an ancient view of citizenship, and that is entailed when he uses this word citizenship, that for him, citizenship means unity, it means interdependence. So that if the Philippians are actually living as citizens worthy of the kingdom, then it will mean standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side. There was a book called Boys in the Boat. It's about the 1936 Olympics team, rowing team. And uh, it's about these guys who come from lower and middle class backgrounds and they come together. And most of the book is about them to learn to follow the directions of the coxswain, The one who makes the calls in front of the boat as he, as he calls out to them, push, pull, push, pull, push, pull. And, and when you are a rowing team, it, everything depends on your ability to synchronize. The writer puts it like this. There's a musical beauty when several voices sing in perfect harmony. A similar effect happens in rowing, when all eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by anyone is out of sync with those of the others. It's called swing. The rowers cease being a boatload of individuals and become a single unit. It's not just a matter of getting oar strokes together. It's harmonizing every minute muscle action from one end of the boat to the other. Only then will it feel as if the boat is part of each of them, moving as if it's on its own. What Paul is calling the church of Philippi to, and us as well, is swing. Standing firm in one spirit striving side by side. These are military and athletic metaphors. You say, well, why? Why would we want to do that? I mean, getting on the same page with people is challenging. And is it even worth it? But Paul gives us the motivation. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy... Paul is pointing out the things that God brings to the church community or to people through the church community. He's saying, if you've experienced any of this in the church, if you've experienced any, just an inkling of God's encouragement, if you've experienced an inkling of God's comfort, of his love, if you've experienced an inkling of his, infe- of his affection or his sympathy, then put off rivalry and division and get together. How he lets us know in verses two through five of that same chapter, he he tells us that we are to have the same love in verse two, participate in mutual love together. He also tells us to be of full accord. The the word actually has the sense of being that being joined in soul, that you are with soul with others. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is you need to realize that your souls are bound to the souls of others. That you are united to them as you are united in Christ. And your destinies are bound up together as well. I, I, I once heard someone say, and this is a common sentiment, like why it, people think about this especially with when certain ethical questions like sexual ethics and stuff. Why do people care so much for what I do? Because we're part of one another. That, that's like a co-joined twin saying, why do you care what I do with this leg? Like, it's uh, we're one body. We are one. Our souls, our destinies are bound together. And the more that we realize that we are bound together, the more we will live as bound together. Thirdly, Paul calls us not only to have the same love To be joined of soul, but also to have the same mind. What Paul does not mean here is agree on any and every issue. When he says have one mind, we know what he means. Because in verse 5 he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind he's talking about is the self-divesting, sacrificial disposition to love. It's the disposition of Jesus Christ, who did not use his rights and his privilege and his status for his own advantage, but he utilized those things, he harnessed those things for you and for me. He shed his blood for us that we might be his, that we might be his citizens. And that's actually where it starts, because you know, at the beginning it's just that Jesus, being in very nature God, see he knew who he was. And it's the very fact that he knew who he was, that he knew that he was fully loved by the Father and fully loved in the Spirit, that he was able to do those things. Do you know who you are? You are a citizen of heaven. You are a blood-bought citizen of heaven. Your future is secure. You are loved. You are an heir to the world. And it's precisely because of that. Your future is resurrected in hope, and it's precisely because of that. That we can give up, that we can sacrifice, that we can love, that we can not have our own way. This is how we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace this election season and every season. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.